T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Hi there. Real quick programming note before we start the program today. What you're about to hear is actually part of a two-hour special on mental health that first aired on KCBS earlier this week. It's called I'm Listening. This program has been a labor of love for us here at KCBS for the past couple of months. So we're going to be replaying portions of the hour during the in-depth time slot, both this weekend and next. That's the broadcast time slot. Uh, Here on the podcast, though... We've got the full hour for you right here. We'll be back to our regular format in two weeks, but now, without further ado, here's I'm Listening Bay Area, a special production of KCBS Radio. Welcome back to I'm Listening, a two-hour special dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention and ending stigma through conversation. I'm Keith Manconi. I'm Melissa Colross. In the second hour this evening, we're going to shift our focus a bit closer to home with stories of mental health crisis and resilience from here in the Bay Area. People are struggling out here. There are people who are homeless and tense. Definitely had performance anxiety and created a very strong level of second-guessing myself. And the millisecond my hands left that rail, it was an instant regret for my actions. I appreciate the, the kind of support that I had, and I appreciate that I knew when to seek help. Thanks everyone for joining us this hour. So Melissa, we've been doing this special for a few years now, and uh, really those two words that you mentioned at the top there, crisis and resilience, I think that they pretty well sum up the story that we're finding in the Bay Area when it comes to mental health. There is a mental health crisis out there. Far too many people are in dire circumstances, and far too many needs are going unmet. That is a stark reality that is still very much with us. On the other hand, there are also a whole lot of people in the community going above and beyond to offer support and solidarity. With all that in mind, we're going to be bringing you a series of special reports this hour that shed light on both sides of that story. Now, before we jump into any of those, let's welcome our special guest, who will be here throughout the hour to offer expert advice and insight into how we all can do a better job looking after one another and ourselves. Meredith Sears is a clinical psychologist specializing in suicide prevention for the San Francisco VA. She's also the president of the board of the Greater Bay Area Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide. Prevention. Welcome, Meredith, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right. So to get us started this hour, Meredith, a few questions for you. Uh, We've been living with this pandemic and all of the many crises that surround it for more than two years now. 
And we've discussed in years past on this program uh, about the many ways that that has all added up to uh, make the mental health crisis worse. Uh, People really have been struggling uh, through all of this. And I'm just wondering if you could update that picture for us based on what you're hearing from uh, patients, from folks out there. How are people coping now in 2022? Are, Are people beginning to find their footing? I think a lot of people are beginning to find their footing. Um, a lot of people have been accessing mental health care who never have before. A lot of people are starting to reconnect with their communities as um, in-person events start to go live again. At the same time, I think we're surprised by how difficult it is to get back into the swing of things. I think being at home and isolated for two plus years has created a lot of anxiety about going back to normal and uh, what that might look like. And so what I'm seeing is the need for mental health care continues to be very high. A lot of people are still struggling with anxiety and depression um, and difficult difficulty readjusting to a new normal. Meredith, your organization is hosting a series of awareness and solidarity events around the issues of mental health and suicide prevention. These are known as out-of-the-darkness walks. There was one in San Francisco about a week and a half ago. Another one is set for Oakland next month. Can you tell us a bit about them and the message that are, that's behind them? Absolutely. AFSP runs these walks every fall. And they're designed to raise awareness about mental health and suicide prevention Um, help support lost survivors who have lost a loved one to suicide, help support people who have lived experience of suicidal thoughts or um, past suicidal behavior, and really reduce stigma around talking about suicide. One of the hopes of the AFSP walks is that people will feel more comfortable reaching out for help. Um, Loved ones will feel more comfortable asking uh, about thoughts of suicide and about mental health concerns when they're worried about someone that they care about, and ultimately um, funding better research in suicide prevention and um, being able to find new and um, creative ways to reduce suicide rates and improve mental health care for the population at large. You brought up those twin goals of raising awareness about mental health and reducing the stigma. And interestingly, just based on the very narrow lens that I have uh, helping to host this show every year, I I really do get the sense that we are making some progress on both those fronts. Uh, Curious, Meredith Sears, are are you seeing the same thing that I'm seeing, that there really is some progress happening? Absolutely. And I think what I look to is the different kinds of outcome variables that we want to see shift if we can reduce mental health stigma and if we can increase people's willingness to talk about mental health, right? Because reducing stigma in and of itself is not a useful task. The reason we want to reduce stigma and the reason we want people to be more comfortable talking about mental health is because we want people who struggle with mental health conditions to reach out for help. We want them to to access care that's actually going to improve their mental health and reduce anxiety, depression, and what other other symptoms, whatever other symptoms they're experiencing. And I do see many, many more people accessing mental health care, especially over the last few years. We're also seeing much more intense mental health concerns across the board. Some estimates are suggesting that um, we're seeing increased anxiety and depression up to 40% of the population relative to what used to be kind of a standard 10% of the population experiencing um, 
you know, anxiety and depression at a level that that was really bothering them at any given time. So I think both we're seeing more willingness to talk about mental health, more awareness that mental health is important and that we need to take care of ourselves and our mental health. And unfortunately, we're also seeing increased need for those services at the same time. All right. Well, speaking once again this hour to Meredith Sears with the Greater Bay Area chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Continuing our program now, we're going to go on to our first story of mental health challenge and community support. And a quick heads up that these stories do make references to suicides. Keith, we've been talking about the ways in which we as a society now are beginning to take mental health and mental health care more seriously. One of the biggest examples of that from this past year has been the rollout of a new national emergency number created specifically to help people experiencing a mental crisis. The number is 988. Similar to the concept of 911, except this new number will put callers in touch with trained counselors ready to offer talk support or other mental health resources. Our own Kathy Novak got a first-hand look at how this program is rolling out in the Bay Area, and she joins us now to tell us about it. Kathy, welcome to the program. Hi, Keith and Melissa. Well, 988 is a national service, and if you call or text from a Bay Area number, you'll be connected with a counselor at a local center who has gone through extensive training on how to handle crisis calls. And we thought a good way to get a better idea of how this all works would be for me to actually do some of that training. Here's how it went to the hardware store and I I bought a rope. I don't know how like thick or thin it was supposed to be, but you know, I got a, a pretty long rope. That this is not a real small. phone call. Training been, manager you know, Daniela Bermudez is playing the role of someone who today. has dialed 988 for support. I've been like taking it in and out, like kind of messing with it. And it's been stressing me out. And I don't know, I just thought I wanted to call somebody. I hear that you're trying to look after yourself and and protect yourself by reaching out for support. That's really great that you did that. That's me trying to put some of what Daniela has taught me into practice. And it sounds like you're kind of messing with this rope and, you know, you mentioned that that's stressing you out. So I wonder, would it be okay if maybe we put the rope in another room? I guess I could do that. Um, In this scenario, the person who has called is at a high risk for suicide, and my goal is to intervene in this crisis and make sure they're safe. Suicide prevention has been at the core of the work that Crisis Support Services of Alameda County has done since the 1960s. Just in the past couple months alone, we've noticed a 30% increase in call volume. That's Executive Director Narja Sahori Dillon. She explains that jump in calls started when CSS became one of 200 local crisis centers across the country, 13 of them in California, that answer calls made to the 988 lifeline. And therefore anyone who is having a mental health crisis, most of the calls they get are not from people who are having suicidal thoughts. We get a lot of calls between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. during a time where maybe we can't call up our natural supports, our friends or family, or there's not a place that we can just pop into to feel connected. And just being there to pick up the phone can help. But I have no background in mental health. And as I get a taste of the extensive training required of the volunteers who take these calls, training manager Daniela asks how I feel going into it. One of the things I'd be most concerned about is not being able to stop someone, you know, if they're thinking about suicide of not being able to help or making it worse somehow. That's a very valid concern. And that's why I was saying on day one, people are like, how am 
I going to do this, right? They definitely don't take the calls on day one, and there are always licensed clinicians on hand for support. And Executive Director Narja Sohori Dillon says CSS deliberately has a model of bringing volunteers in from the community. There's a ton of research showing the value of community-based support, especially for people who might be hesitant around help-seeking. Knowing that the people on the other side are community members who care is actually a way that they feel connected and they can feel like they belong. Daniela Bermudez explains it's not therapy, nor is it about running down a checklist of questions. And especially when it comes to like assessing for suicide or even asking people questions, we really want to think about it as, you know, tell us about you. Tell us how you got here. Tell us what's going on. Like, we want to know about our callers. We want to know their story. In that sense, maybe news reporters and journalists are good people to volunteer for these lines because that's what we do like all day. There you go. Yeah, we're always looking for, we're taking rolling applications if you want to be a volunteer. So bringing the conversation back into the studio now, Kathy, one thing that you said that really stood out to me, and it's probably because of what all of us do for a living, is you made the comparison between having these kinds of conversations and being a journalist in which you interview people all the time. What was the striking difference between our work and what you learned in this training? Yeah, Melissa, I'm still not an expert in mental health, so I will say that at the outset and that this is all what I personally took out of the training. But we heard from training manager Daniela Bermudis there about how it really is all about knowing someone's story. And what I gather, what I've experienced personally, is that when you're having a tough time mentally, it really does mean so much for someone to just listen and for you to feel like you're being heard. So asking open questions was a big part of this training. There's stuff in there about affirmation, reflective listening. And as a journalist, what I took from that was listen to what people are saying, ask follow-up questions. It's the kind of skills that are involved in good interviewing. So that was sort of unexpected for me. And maybe it demonstrates what Narja Sahori Dillon meant about having uh, volunteers bring in lived experience from the community, not only professional training, though, of course, as I mentioned, there are are always licensed clinicians that counselors can call on if they need help. So it sounds like this is a set of skills that anybody can at least get better at. Absolutely. Anyone can be aware of their friends, family, loved ones, and anyone can ask, how are you doing? If you notice something is different, you're not really yourself, you seem upset, whatever it might be, the advice that I got in the training was just name it. Ask your loved one if they're doing okay, and then just be there to listen. And if you have a specific concern about suicide risk, name that too. It's okay to outright ask, do you feel that you might be at a risk of suicide? Or put it in words people use. Have you thought about killing yourself? These are questions you can ask. Here's how Narja Sahuri Dillon explained it. There's a common misconception that asking someone about suicide would give them an idea. And that's just not true. There is quite a bit of knowledge that we have in the field of suicidology that tells us asking someone could actually relieve their stress. It makes them feel seen and the depth of their pain kind of finally has a space to be spoken about. So, Kathy, starting the conversation is one thing, but what if once you get into it, it gets to be too much? It feels overwhelming for either party. 
Right, because it is one thing for me to say now, just ask, but then what happens when someone answers? And I thought I might come out of this training and demonstrate that, look, if I can do it, anyone can do it. And here are a few tips about how to have these conversations. To a certain extent, that's true. Everything that I said about just being there, just listening, just asking is true. But also remember, the counselors who do this training for the Crisis Lifeline have gone through at least 72 hours of this kind of training. It's a scaffolded training, and they don't don't jump into the taking phone calls on day one. They also have links to all kinds of resources that you and I might not ordinarily be aware of. So if you want help, you can call 988 yourself or there is another option. Here's Narja Sahuri Dillon again. One of the things that I often suggest to parents, to siblings, to loved ones is call the crisis line with your loved one that you're worried about if they're willing to and try it out together. And that really reduces the pressure on the person who's already struggling to have to do the really hard task of picking up the phone and talking to someone about their problem. You can say, hey, we can call together and let's see how it goes. All right, some useful pieces of advice there. Um, Bringing clinical psychologist Meredith Sears back into the conversation Wondering if you could address a concern that I think some folks out there might have, which is that calling 988 could potentially lead to law enforcement involvement. Um, I think the message has been that that would be a last resort, but still seems like it could be a possibility. Uh, I know that you have been following the rollout of 988 very closely. What should people know on that front? I think that's a really important question because worries about the police being called and worries about what will happen if you reach out for support can keep people from actually reaching out when they really need it. And when people are going through a mental health crisis, a big part of what they need is to get support, have someone who can listen and help them work through whatever crisis they're experiencing. And so if you're considering calling 988, to get support for a mental health crisis, we have to think about what are the alternatives? If you're worried about the police being called, do you have sufficient support to get through the situation that you're experiencing? The responders are trained in listening to what the callers are going through in the moment. They don't make assumptions and they don't assume that there's a safety situation if there isn't. And so if you call, the goal is to provide you support. And it's in a very rare situations that Safety concerns are deemed to be so intense that law law enforcement needs to be called. Law enforcement really is called as the absolute last resort. And so if someone is in a situation where law enforcement needs to be called, we hope that that's for safety reasons and reasons to help that person survive the crisis. And it's not done. It's not done lightly. All right. Well, I think that that gives a good foundation on this new program that will hopefully be a valuable tool for a lot of folks out there. Going to round out that segment right there. Uh, Kathy, thank you so much for joining the program. Thanks very much for having me. If you're just joining us, this is I'm Listening on KCBS, a two-hour special dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention. I'm Keith Manconi, joined by Melissa Colross. Our second story of community solidarity takes us to the Golden Gate Bridge and the longstanding effort to prevent suicides by installing a barrier all along the span. Now, the project has been hit with one setback after another over the years, but now excitement is growing among its supporters as construction of a steel anti-suicide net is getting into the final stages. KCBS's Brett Burkhart spoke with some of the people who have gotten us to this point. 
This is a story about turning tragedy into action to save lives. But it's one that can't be told without hearing how each family became part of a club they weren't looking to join involving one of the most iconic structures in the world. It's incredible. It's such a beautiful place. When I saw it, it's uh, like majestic. It's nice to see it in person. That structure is the reason 10 million people from around the globe visit every year. Biking, walking, taking tours. It's the best day to give a tour of the Golden Gate Bridge ever. Hard to believe that this majestic bridge is also the source of sorrow for some. The bridge has cast a, a dark and tragic shadow since the very beginning. And many of those who have experienced that sorrow have similar stories to tell. And his brother were playing video games and... Of course, he was supposed to be at school that went day. upstairs to bed. When we woke up, he wasn't there. My older son said, Oh, Mom, did you see those people there looking for you? Manuel Gamboa lost his 18-year-old son, Kyle, in 2013. Not even moments later, they come walking back up. And I'm sitting here and I go, hey, the, the people are back. And all of a sudden, I just woke up and just sat up and just knew everything was wrong. Dana Whitmer lost her 20-year-old son, Matthew, in 2007. And around 1 o'clock, my husband, Mark, called me. And he said, oh, the San Francisco police are trying to get a hold of us. You know, Matthew probably parked his car in the wrong spot and they're going to tow it or something. Nah, I'm going, no, 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 no. This is, this is worse. Find out. Call me back. And I stood up at the time and Kim looked at me and said, man, they're not religious people. They're the Sac County coroner's office. And I firmly believe that what woke me up that morning was him just calling out to me, going, hell did I just do, Mom? There was no signs of any mental illness, no signs of any of this path that he chose to take. You know, and everybody who has survived from that bridge, like Kevin Hines, they say they immediately regretted it. And this is Kevin Hines, the survivor Dana referenced. And the millisecond my hands left that rail, it was an instant regret for my actions and the absolute 100% recognition that I had just made the greatest mistake of my life and it was too late. He has become a leading voice for suicide prevention and a source of comfort and inspiration for families who have been left behind. But those who have survived have a common theme they've shared with him. People have recounted in the midst of their attempt uh, that they all had instant regret the moment they thought it was too late. And I believe that is because at the moment where they thought it was too late, they finally recognized, like I did, that their thoughts didn't have to become their actions. Their thoughts could simply be their thoughts. And that's how I live today. We also know that from studies done back in the 1970s, that nine, over nine out of 10 people who are stopped from jumping at the Golden Gate Bridge go on to live long and productive lives. Paolo Koslich Swartz is the spokesperson with the Golden Gate Bridge Highway and Transportation District. It was a study of over 500 people, and it was a key point of research that convinced our board to make the decision to build a barrier because we knew these people weren't just gonna go somewhere else. They do get better, and that for the vast majority of people, being stopped at the Golden Gate Bridge would allow them to continue living a long and happy life. It's the reason Kevin and countless families like the Whitmers and Gamboas, along with organizations like the Bridge Rail Foundation, spent years advocating for a suicide barrier at the Golden Gate Bridge. And on June 27, 2014, funding for the net was approved. You know, all the families that lost their loved ones, 
that went to every board meeting, every hearing, uh, every month at the Golden Gate Bridge District and, and how we fought to get from 16 to zero against us to 16 to zero for us. That's an amazing feat. This is an instance of the community around the bridge coming together to do the right thing, to take a bold step, perhaps ahead of the rest of society. Off in the distance, you can hear the sound of construction. These are crews installing that safety barrier that has been debated for decades. And it brings comfort to the people who have been left behind by loved ones. The design of the suicide barrier has a proven track record from similar installations on tall buildings and bridges across the US and Europe that virtually eliminates attempts altogether. But it's not just a barrier to save lives. It's also about breaking down barriers when it comes to mental health, or what Kevin Hines deliberately calls brain pain. The problem is, when someone develops liver, heart, lung, or kidney disease, or cancer of any of the organs inside the body, what happens? Everybody shows up at the hospital with flowers and teddy bears and cards and compassion, love, empathy, and care. But who shows up the first time you end up in a psych ward? As someone who's been in 10 of them, hardly anybody. And, and that's a travesty. And we need to change that. And this is part yeah. of it. Brett Burkhardt, KCBS. The net is expected to be finished late next year. All right, bringing it back into studio now with Meredith Sears, our guest for this hour, who is a clinical psychologist specializing in suicide prevention for the San Francisco VA. So, Meredith, I think really striking in that story is the message that uh, for all the survivors that we've heard from, the the second that they make that jump, they immediately regret it. And I think what that speaks to is the fact that one of the most important suicide prevention tools that we have is buying more time, giving people more time to reflect, more time to seek support. And that brings us to a very important concept in suicide prevention work, kind of a, a jargony term, but it's this term lethal means. And I know this is something that you're an expert in. W wondering if you could define that term lethal means and explain why it is so important. Sure. A big misconception that people have about suicide is once someone decides to die by suicide, it's an inevitable conclusion. And something that we've learned through research on suicide is that crises, suicidal crises, often are very brief and can lead to impulsive behavior. When people are in an intense amount of pain and they feel like they don't have any options, they feel run up against a brick wall, suicidal thoughts can come up. And the research shows that from the point of deciding to die by suicide to the point of acting, it's often less than an hour, and in many cases, it's less than five minutes. So it's basically the duration of a very intense emotional crisis. And so when people have access to lethal means during a very brief moment like that, it can mean that that brief moment has fatal consequences. A big concern that we have around this is especially access to firearms, because so many American households have access to firearms which we know increases the likelihood of a suicide in the household fivefold. And so if we can reduce access to firearms during these high intensity crises, we may be able to help someone survive long enough to get the support they need, reach out for help, 
and ultimately survive that crisis. So how can we start those kinds of conversations about limiting access, especially for somebody who is actively worried about someone in their life? The most important thing is to be clear and collaborative. So if you're worried about someone in your life, you're worried that they may become suicidal, talk to them ahead of time, be explicit, say, I'm worried about you. I'm worried about suicide. You've been going through a rough time. And then be explicit and collaborative about approaching the topic of reducing access to lethal means. So you can say something like, I know you have a firearm at home. You're going through a really tough period right now. I wonder if it would be worthwhile to reduce access to it just while you're going through this period. Ultimately, the person who owns that weapon is going to be the, the determiner of what whether they decide to reduce access. And so we as healthcare professionals, as loved ones, can really provide an opportunity to guide that conversation and, and broach the topic and make sure they're thinking about it. And ultimately, it's up to them about what they do. And I've heard really creative stories about how people reduce access to their firearms. I've heard about people putting them in storage facilities, um, giving them up to the police if they didn't want them anymore. I've even heard about people locking them up and you know, giving the key to someone else, you know, someone that they trust or freezing it in a block of ice so that it will take them an hour to pull out a hairdryer and, and get that get access to that key, which is likely to get them through that crisis. So it sounds like what you're talking about really is a, a mindset change when it comes to how we handle these, you know, dangerous, potentially lethal items. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that organizations like the VA and AFSP are really working on is creating an ethos among the gun-owning community of paying attention to safety from suicide the same way we pay attention to safety from you know, using child locks and um, making sure kids don't have access to firearms. And so ultimately, one day what we'd love is for everybody to be as familiar with the idea that access to firearms can be reduced during crisis, the same way we're familiar with the idea that friends don't let friends drive drunk. Only this would be something along the lines of friends don't let friends have access to firearms when they're going through mental health crises. So ultimately, what we want to do is empower the community to be able to comfortably or at least somewhat comfortably have conversations with loved ones about reducing access to firearms when people are going through suicidal times. Thank you so much for that great insight so far. We're speaking with clinical psychologist Meredith Sears, who specializes in suicide prevention. You are listening to special programming on KCBS dedicated to suicide prevention and mental health awareness. Stay with us. We'll be back in just two minutes to talk about more strategies to cope during these turbulent times. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. 
Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to I'm Listening, a two-hour special offering candid conversations about mental health struggles and how to find support. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Melissa Colross. A reminder that if you're in crisis, help is just a phone call away. You can reach the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Again, the number to call is 988. We're shining a light this hour on the mental health crisis with stories of community solidarity from right here in the Bay Area. Up next, we check in on how members of the LGBTQ community are faring amid a wave of troubling news, from a new public health emergency to potentially disruptive court decisions to a spate of targeted harassment. Well, two of our KCBS colleagues, Matt Pittman and Mary Hughes, are members of the queer community themselves, and they've certainly been feeling the anxiety of these times. They wanted to find out how others are feeling, so they started asking. Here's what they found, and we're going to be hearing first from Mary. It's a hot and sunny September day in Oakland, as a crowd gathers around Frank Agawa Plaza. Above their heads, flags are held up high, many of them carrying the colors of light blue, pink and white, the colors of the transgender flag. Say her name, Tatiana LaBelle. Say her name. This is the fourth annual Oakland Trans March, moving from the plaza and down Broadway to bring visibility to the community and denounce violence against trans people. The march comes at a time when those in the LGBTQ plus world are feeling increasingly under attack. And that sense of having a target on their back is taking a toll on the mental and emotional well-being of many in the queer community. Hi, my name is Julian. I'm from Vallejo, California. You live in Vallejo or you live here in Oakland? I live in Richmond, but I work in Oakland. Okay, cool. That's KCBS's Matt Pittman speaking with Julian with the AIDS Project, East Bay. We're still, I feel like, behind when it comes to just being able to exist and live, you know, people are struggling out here. There are people who are homeless and tense. Like, you have to work two, three jobs. Like, you know, some of these jobs won't give jobs to people who are trans or, you know. Then there are those times when the need for a safe space to share one's troubles can also be found one-on-one at places like Queer Life Space in the Castro. Start off by just telling me your name and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Chris Holleran, and I am a co-founder and therapist at SF Therapy Collective. And then I'm also the uh, clinical director and training director of Queer Life Space, which is a nonprofit agency. A Chris took some time to sit down with Matt and I to share what struggles um, he's been hearing from queer people right now and to offer up some mental health advice to the both of us as well. Yeah, congratulations, by the Thank way. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Married back in June. We had put off the wedding for a couple of years due to the pandemic, got it to June 17th, and then uh, exactly seven days later is when Roe versus Wade was overturned. And we immediately thought, well, what the hell? Yeah, my first thought was, who's next? 
Mm-hmm. It feels like we're next. Is that something that you have been hearing from your patients, your guests, the people that you talk to? Um, absolutely, uh, for sure, because it's coming during and on the heels of the pandemic where it's almost like I, I think of sort of like rushing Russian dolls, nesting dolls mm. of grief and loss um, inside of each other. And it's just, it's just been this constant barrage of, of loss and then grief related to that loss. And I look into the future and I see a need for us. Um, I look into the future and I see hope. Um, and I look into the future and I see joy and celebration despite um, these dark moments because the dark moments are important to have um, to really highlight that joy and celebration. So Mary, I'm curious to get your kind of big takeaway from the couple of days that we spent kind of out and about. For me, it was just like, I'm not the only one, you know, a little bit comforting to know that you're not alone and sharing some anxieties that are also shared within your own community. No, that's exactly how I felt. Just to be among community, mm-hmm. to be among family, because that's what the LGBTQIA plus world is, Yes, where you can find a sense of safety and a sense of camaraderie. Mm-hmm. Just being around other people. Yeah, it's a reflection of yourself. It's a reflection of what's important to you. And in times of struggle, it it's what lifts you up right, when you right. need it most. Mm-hmm. That's why I was excited to do this story with you. Me too. Mary, thank you so much. She is Mary Hughes. I'm Matt Pittman, KCBS. You're listening to a special presentation of Stories About Mental Health on KCBS. We're going to continue on to our next piece now. Keith? Melissa, we've been hearing for more than two years about the incredible strain that the pandemic has taken on the healthcare system. Well, all this extra pressure, landing squarely on the shoulders of frontline doctors and nurses, is compounding a mental health crisis within the healthcare profession that was already a major problem even before the pandemic began. Now, demands for change are growing louder. KCBS reporter Mike DeWald spoke with some of those making the call. Physicians and nurses die by suicide at two times the rate of the general population. Each year, 400 physicians die by suicide. Surge after surge, patient after patient, the pandemic all taking a toll. It's not a lot of training that we get in nursing school on how to deal with very distraught patients and distraught family members. Nerissa Black is a registered nurse in Southern California, formerly treating telemetry patients who are under constant monitoring. She says the job is traditionally about balance. The worst days are balanced by patients recovering and going home to happy families. She says the pandemic tipped the scales. She recalls a phone conversation with a patient's son early in the pandemic. His mom was in the hospital and she was he was just having lunch with her and now he is scared to death that that was the last time that he would see his mother alive. These conversations becoming more and more commonplace. You, you could just hear the the pain in his voice. Already faced with short staffing, a change in statewide staffing ratios meant Black was treating more patients in less time, even as a surge ramped up. It takes an emotional toll when you are unable to provide that kind of care that that you think is right, that you think is 
human. Finally, a tipping point. Black recalls her and another nurse being the only staff treating 14 patients at a time. I told my coworkers that if I if if that happens again, I'm just gonna refuse the assignment and I'm just gonna quit on the spot because I couldn't I couldn't do it. Black and her family contracted COVID-19 just as return to work rules were loosening in healthcare. Her own moral injury too much to bear. She realized it was time for a change, stepping away from the job for her own well-being and seeking support. It's a term more frequently being used by healthcare professionals to describe their anguish. I was very ready to leave the field of nursing, the field of healthcare. Moral injury is similar to that of post-traumatic stress disorder, the social and psychological harm that arises from the betrayal of one's core values. It's something almost two-thirds of nurses and nearly half of doctors say they've experienced while battling COVID-19. This has all occurred in the context of a mental health crisis. There was a mental health crisis before the pandemic. Paul Nicholas is a psychiatrist and a medical director at Providence Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital. He's treated physicians and nurses going through what he says are significant psychiatric symptoms tied to the pandemic. Hopelessness, fair amount of suicidal ideation at times. As a coping mechanism, he says many simply try to push through. A lot of them, uh, my impression is, is that they're suffering in silence. Nicholas says it's about more than just burnout. He says the issues of moral injury are deeply rooted. They feel let down by society, the system. And there's all sorts of deep, difficult emotion occurring. Fear, uh, shame, uh, I wasn't good enough. Nicholas worries that a rapidly changing medical system forces the mental health conversation back into the shadows. Physicians and other healthcare workers don't seek mental health treatment because they're afraid of that in some way jeopardizing their career or they're going to be punished for it. While the worst of the pandemic may be behind us, Nerissa Black says the psychological toll lingers on. You see the fire is gone and it's hard to see that because I work with great people. The nurses that I work with are wonderful human beings, very caring and when their light is off, it's hard to see. After working with a psychiatrist and getting some support from her family, Black returned to the field in a different role with a more manageable ratio of patients. I appreciate the, the kind of support that I had, and I appreciate that I knew when to seek help. Nurses across the Bay Area have taken to the picket line to highlight the mental health challenges they're facing, in part due to short staffing. I'm still fighting for our, our staff to get the, the support that they need. Mike DeWald, KCBS. We're now going to continue our conversation with clinical psychologist Meredith Sears. She specializes in suicide prevention for the San Francisco VA and is president of the board of the Greater Bay Area Chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Meredith, one of the things we've been talking about up to this point has been very interpersonal. It's been conversations. It's been how people can help each other individually. But what about environments, including, as we just heard, workplaces? How can changes be made to make environments more supportive? Traditionally, worker burnout has been seen as something that the individual is required to manage themselves, right? The recommendations are usually along the lines of um, take deep breaths, uh, do yoga, eat well, sleep well. And one thing we're learning through research on this topic is that a lot of the work in reducing employee burnout has to happen at a systems level. And there are a lot of things that employers can be thinking about that I think the pandemic has really brought into focus for people in terms of helping people 
make sure that they are able to achieve a work-life balance that feels sustainable for them, that they're able to have flexibility in things like whether they're working from home or whether they're coming into an office, uh, flexibility in scheduling, whether they're working you know, a few long days or many shorter days. Those kinds of areas of flexibility can really allow employees to be able to build schedules and build a lifestyle that feels sustainable and feels workable and is something that doesn't really tax their mental health. Yeah, and I think that that's a really interesting reframing of the issue because, well, uh, even on this show in years past, we certainly have pushed that message of the importance of self-care, you know, long walks, yoga, whatever, uh, as ways to support mental health for individuals. But it really seems like the, the message from that past story is that that's not sufficient. If you're part of a company, if you're part of an institution where there's this broader dysfunction and people are not feeling supported, you know, you really have to deal with those bigger systemic issues to really help people in the ways that they need to be helped. So Meredith Sears does seem like in a lot of ways there is something of a rethinking going on right now. Well, I think the what they're calling the great resignation has shown us that people are in many ways deciding that their workplaces are not capable of providing them a sustainable environment and they're rethinking what role they want work to have in their lives. And I think we're all thinking about that. It's certainly been on my mind is how can I um, have a sustainable work role, still have a good relationship with my family and my friends and do my hobbies. And so thinking about how workplaces can contribute to creating that sustainable balance is a really, really important part of the equation. A lot of workplaces do have systems set up, but they're not always so evident. What recommendations would you have for people to be able to access what resources might be available to them? Well, I'm in mental health. And so my first thought is always, are people who are struggling with conditions like anxiety and depression um, and moral injury and trauma, do they have the resources that they need in order to begin to heal and begin to have a life where they're not experiencing crippling or chronic anxious um, anxiety or depression? And one of the challenges that we see in the American healthcare system is that not only is mental health care less familiar to people, um, and so it's less obvious what kind of mental health care they might want to pursue, but it can also be challenging to identify the resources that are available to you. Health insurance companies in the U.S. are required to cover some degree of mental health care. What that means is reaching out to your insurance company can be the first step to getting access to the mental health care that you need. Now, unfortunately, that can often lead to um, getting a really long list of providers in your area, um, many of which may have long wait lists. And that's one of the challenges that we're seeing in the pandemic is a lot of people are reaching out for support and there just isn't enough, there aren't enough mental health workers to be able to support the need for mental health care. That said, as a person who's struggling with a mental health condition, it can be very challenging to call a list of people, you know, pound the pavement, see if you can find someone who will take your insurance, see if you can be creative about different ways of accessing mental health care um, if the insurance coverage isn't sufficient. 
And so as a loved one, that's one thing I really like to see people supporting um, family members and friends in doing is actually taking some of those steps for them, saying, I want to help support you in getting connected with a mental health care provider. Can I call them for you? Can I leave messages? Can I keep track of who we've reached out to and whether they have availability? And can I help you schedule those appointments? Well, that's a really interesting piece of advice because mostly on the show so far, we've been talking about the power of conversation and how uh, listening to somebody in mental distress is a very powerful tool. But uh, you're saying in, you know, in addition to that, (laughs) There are really a lot of practical nuts and bolts uh, steps that we can take, uh, forms of support that are also very important. Absolutely. The important thing is always getting consent. When someone is reaching out for support, one thing they just may want is someone to listen. And that's okay. You can be someone who listens. But if they're open to it, if they're open to a conversation about getting connected with mental health care, one way you may be able to help is really helping them actually take the proactive steps to be able to make that a reality. All right. And once again, speaking with Meredith Sears with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Now for our final segment this hour, we're going to bring you the story of Drew Robinson, a former player in the San Francisco Giants organization who found his way through the depths of depression and despair and discovered on the other side a new mission in baseball to help others. KCBS reporter Chris Ancarlo has this story and a warning that it does include an attempted suicide. If you open your Major League rule book to the bottom of page 22, you'll find rule 505A2. The batter becomes a runner when the third strike called by the umpire is not caught, providing first base is unoccupied or there are two outs. Well, this means someone who just struck out can still run and make it safely to first base. It happens, but it's rare. On April 16th of 2020, Drew Robinson made the decision to kill himself. He pointed a gun at his right temple and pulled the trigger. The bullet tore through his right eye and went out to his left cheek. The third strike went by Robinson. He didn't die. The ball hit the ground. I was expecting to happen what you see in the movies, and when that didn't happen, I was just even more confused. And for 20 hours, he survived at home with a gaping wound before finally deciding to call 911. He made it to first. Really, what I was able to do was actually choose life but just surviving wasn't enough he would need a team to carry him forward the amount of like acts of kindness that were given to me for my family and friends went such a long way robinson tells odyssey station 95 7 the game rebuilding his life meant confronting the depression that almost destroyed him i definitely had performance anxiety and created a very strong level of second guessing myself Baseball is such a mental game, needing discipline and focus as long stretches of inaction build potential energy released in quick kinetic moments that demand instantaneous decisiveness. Do I swing or not? Should I try to turn two or get the guy at first? Do I dive for the out or do I play it safe on the hop? All of that happening as thousands of fans react. It's a pressure cooker for players. It only added to the element of not feeling good enough because it's just natural. Where you're not going to do everything that you want the way you want it every single time you try it. But it's also a release for fans. I feel rejuvenated. It's just the magic of the game. It's just a time to relax and kind of check out from the reality of this world we live in. And the players are really good because that's why we're here, right? And so there it is, the duality of the performer acting under stress and duress to evoke joy and happiness 
all while making things look effortless. The most put together person that you see, the most confident person that you're around is probably dealing with something that you have no idea about. I just didn't have the education around. I didn't know exactly what it was. I, I was the typical part of the stigma where my image or my thought of depression was the, the stuff that you see like in movies are just like what people think about just like straight up crying all the time. Now Robinson is working to chart a healthier path forward for other players after a comeback with one eye ended at AAA Sacramento. The Giants offered Robinson a job. He is a mental health advocate, which basically means he's a bridge between the players and Dr. Payette and I. Shayna Alexander is the director of mental health for the Giants. He is a peer who travels to all the different affiliates, so all of our different minor league locations, and he comes here to San Francisco with the big league players as well. In short, Robinson's role is to talk about mental health, to demystify the stigma. I just didn't have like an example of someone like talking about it before and but I had to learn the hard way unfortunately and that's why I'm so passionate about doing this. The incident with Drew really shook the organization and helped us recognize that it doesn't matter who you are, mental health doesn't discriminate. It's an understanding that allows his lesson to apply beyond the chalk of the baselines. That's why he's making his second chance count, building a program that can be duplicated in clubhouses throughout baseball and maybe relieve some of the stress to give players a chance to better feel the joy of the game like the fans do. You come here and it's, it's almost magical. Baseball is an incredible game. It's a great diversion. Hitting three home runs with one eye was one of the coolest things I think I'll ever do in my life, but I get so much more fulfillment from um, having a positive impact on people's lives. Robinson chose life when he dialed 911. He got his second chance. He made it to first base after strike three, but making it around the base paths is a team effort. The friendly check-ins, being there to listen, telling people you love them, and talking about mental health. It's the tricky work Robinson and so many others are doing to help more people make it home safe. Chris Ancarlo, KCBS. We're going to bring the conversation back to our clinical psychologist, Meredith Sears. That clearly was a very inspiring story. What do you think we all can learn from it? One of the things I love about this story as a psychologist is that it really underscores the degree to which change is possible. Something I experience when patients come through my door is people often feel a lot of despair about change. They feel depressed. They feel anxious. Um, and it doesn't feel like those emotions will ever go away. And I have the luxury of seeing that change is possible every day when I work with people and teach them new strategies, new ways to interact with their life experiences. I see that depression go down and I see that anxiety do go down. And Drew Robinson is using his platform to communicate that change is possible to so many people who may have that same despair and that hopelessness that, that they could ever experience a life without a really painful mental health condition. And I think that that's especially important because when you are in that moment of deep crisis, there is this very tricky part of your mind that is telling you, this is how it's going to be forever. It's never going to get any better. We know once we, you know, have some time to heal and some time to reflect that that part of our mind is not actually telling us the truth, but it can be very, very hard to understand that in that moment. So uh, I guess just another reason why stories like this are uh, so important to get out there. Absolutely. One thing that the VA provides and programs like AFSP is something called peer support, which is basically people who have lived experience of suicidal thoughts, people who have lived experience of losing a loved one to suicide, 
people who have experience of trauma and many, many mental health conditions who are actually trained as counselors. They're trained to support people going through mental health crises to remind them and show them really clearly change is possible and healing is possible. And I love those programs um, for providing that additional that additional perspective that I, as a mental health provider, don't necessarily have the cachet to, to provide. All right, Meredith Sears, well, we only have a couple of minutes left, and I guess I'll leave it to you how to end things out. You know, you've heard the stories from our reporters. You yourself have been speaking with folks throughout the year uh, in the community about their uh, own mental health struggles. What closing message would you want to leave us with as we round out this hour? There are a lot of people in the world who want to help each other and don't always have the words or the expertise to know how to help. And one of the things that I think is just so important for us to take away from these stories is that everybody can provide support. If you care about someone, the most important thing you can offer them is to show that caring. Suicide happens most often when people are feeling really isolated and they're feeling like a burden on their families and communities. And so if you as a person who cares about them or even a person who hasn't known them for very long can suggest, look, I care about you. I care about what happens to you. I'm willing to go there. I'm willing to go into this really tough, dark space, ask about suicide directly, ask about mental health conditions directly and provide some really concrete support for reducing access to lethal means in the moment, for getting connected with mental health care, for supporting someone in improving their mental health hygiene, for um, reaching back upwards to their employer um, or to your own employer and saying, here are some of the changes we need to see in order to have a more sustainable environment to work in. All of those actions can provide really concrete change in a person's life and help them feel more hopeful, help them feel cared for, and ultimately get them through what may be a really, really challenging time. And that is a great note to leave it on. And that does bring us to the end of this special presentation of I'm Listening, a two-hour program dedicated to raising awareness about suicide prevention and ending stigma through conversation. Joining us for this conversation has been Meredith Sears, a clinical psychologist specializing in suicide prevention for the San Francisco VA. She also serves as the president of the board for the Greater Bay Area chapter of the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Meredith Sears, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. A reminder before we go, if you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, or if you just need someone to talk to, you can call 988 to get in touch with a trained counselor near you. Again, that national number is 988. This special you've just heard also is available on the Odyssey app, and additional resources can be found at imlistening.org. A big thank you to everyone who contributed to the program today. All of these stories just go to show that there is so much incredible work going on out there to make sure that no matter who you are or what you're facing, there is always someone ready to listen. Thank you for listening. For KCBS, I'm Keith Menconi. I'm Melissa Kalross. Be well. Talk with you again soon. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. 
plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 